This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The New Testament book of Romans has been one of the most important and influential books of the Bible in the history of the church. Augustine and Pelagius argued about its teaching and its implications in the early 5th century. It was seminal for the Reformation. As he lectured through it in 1515-1516, Martin Luther recovered the doctrine of justification on the basis of the righteousness of Christ for us and imputed to us. Calvin's institutes were deeply influenced by it, as was the Heidelberg Catechism. How many Reformed people today started out in other traditions only to be confronted by challenging passages in Romans, which made them rethink their entire theology, piety, and practice? John Fesco is one of those, and he's academic dean and professor of historical and systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's been studying the Book of Romans for a long time, and he has preached through it. And one of the fruits of that ministry is his new book, Romans, the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary on the New Testament, published in 2018. It's just out. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be with you again. You have a new commentary on Romans, and as indicated in the introduction, there are lots of commentaries on Romans. So why this one? What's new about it? And, by the way, what does Lectio Continua mean? Why another new commentary on Romans? I'm a firm believer that every generation has to personally appropriate and embrace the truth. We can't just take things for granted. And as important as it is to read commentaries from the past, whether we're looking at Calvin, for example, or Luther, or Hodge, or Haldane, as valuable and as important as those books are, we need to study it for ourselves so that we can say that, yes, I genuinely believe this ex animo from my heart, from my very own soul. And so that's, to me, one of the more important reasons as to why another one on the Book of Romans. But related to that, what is the Lectio Continua? And that's something that the Reformers really, I think, invested a lot of time in their efforts at pastoral ministry and preaching in the Reformation. It used to be that the medieval preachers, if you will, uh, mendicants and monks, they used to preach from lectionaries, or in a sense we could call them pre-written Canton sermons that they regularly read through on regular basis. Or there were assigned places from which a minister had to preach. Right. So in the Reformation, they just started preaching through books. That's right, Is yeah. That, that's what this means? Yeah, basically, Lectio Continua, continual reading, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through it from beginning to end. We take this for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, a minister does this. Mm-hmm. But in the Reformation, that was kind of a new thing. Yeah, very much was so. And in fact, it was often perceived by people observing the Reformation as being somewhat rebellious against the church for not following the church's preaching calendar. And so this, I think, at one point was very new, but it's, I think, a real blessing to be able to study a book from cover to cover and uh, look at it verse by verse. And so this commentary came out of your preaching. So this isn't just John in his office looking at Mm -hmm. the text and looking at the Greek and looking at other commentaries and then interacting with them and giving your opinion. This actually grew out of your standing in the pulpit and expositing or proclaiming this text to 
God's people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the defining marks of this particular commentary series is not only to bring important exegetical and doctrinal observations from the text, but also to do our best to apply the text, or at least to point out to the people that are reading the text how this impacts the Christian life, how their piety should be shaped by what Paul has to say in Romans. And so in this respect, we can say that deep doctrine really informs rich piety. So this is also a practical commentary. It's not just exegetical. It's not just theological. But you do actually seek to take the text and answer the question— what are the implications of this passage that mm-hmm. we looked at? Because you have, I don't remember exactly how many chapters, but these are really short chapters of just a few pages. So at the end of this, you do say, and here are some implications for the Christian life from this text. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, brief little expositions of each text. I think they're roughly about eight to 10 pages on average. And then from there, reflecting upon what the text means for the Christian life, not just in terms of just, okay, what do I have to do? But how does this doctrine inform my way of life? to borrow a phrase from uh, the title of a book, How Then Should We Live? Well, okay, if this is true, then how should we live? How does this change the way that I think about my life and about my relationship to Christ and to others? You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to John Fesco about his new commentary, Romans, the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary on the New Testament, available through the bookstore here at the seminary and uh, everywhere good books are sold. You begin the commentary by writing about how important Romans is. Why is Romans so important? It was important for you personally. Mm -hmm. It was important for me Mm -hmm. personally, and I suspect for the listener and, and for lots and lots of people. But what is there about Romans that makes it so important. I think that what Paul does here is he takes a pretty expansive look at the implications and the nature of the gospel. This isn't to say that it's exhaustive, that he answers every single doctrinal question that we might have, but it's certainly, I think, one of the broadest and most expansive vistas that you can get in the scriptures, because at numerous points, he goes all the way back to the garden, back to what Adam did and the implications of Adam's sin. And he also then takes a very perspective look forward as to the implications as to what Christ has done, not only in the present for the believer, but also what that means for the consummation, what that means for the final judgment. And so I think in that respect, it's very helpful for us because it gives us such a breathtaking view of things. But a second observation is, is that because it was so formative for the Reformation, Paul is talking about such important issues such as the doctrine of justification, sanctification, original sin, the doctrine of election, Christian liberty. There are so many, I don't know if you want to call them big doctrines in there. Uh, Maybe that's not the best word, but big doctrines that Paul talks about and goes into great detail and great length. Uh, You know, he's talking about justification from Romans 3.20, arguably up until Romans chapter 8, verse 4. And uh, he's talking about sanctification in there at other points, but that's one of the big topics there. And I think that that's what the Reformers, they came across that, and it was so formative upon their understanding of what the gospel is, and thus upon the Reformation. Uh, I think that's why Romans is so important, not only just for the church, but you could almost say for really the entire Reformation. Is there a kind of order to Romans? It has seemed to me that there is, that you can, in broad terms, say that uh, from, say, 117 or so through 320, you could say that's the bad news or the law in broad terms. And then from 321, maybe to the end of 7 or the first part of chapter 8, that's the good news. And maybe we could push that 
even into through nine and mm-hmm. depending on how you want to divide it up. And then the last part of the book is about the Christian life. Mm-hmm. In my ecclesiastical tradition, we talk about the Heidelberg Catechism being in three parts, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me that there's a correlation there, too, with the book of Romans. Is that how you organize the book in your mind? Yeah, no, I think broadly speaking, that's definitely accurate. And I think the the overall pattern of guilt, grace, and gratitude certainly fits that pattern as well. You know, there's debate in Calvin studies about why did Calvin write the Institutes the way he did? And you can make a case that he started off early on following the Apostles' Creed, but eventually I think it morphed into following the outline of the Book of Romans. You know, so I think that in this way, it was really influential upon the Reformers that they saw that Paul was setting out the gospel, not only doctrinally, but for life in general. And so that's why they followed its patterns. And I think why it made such an impact act upon, say, the Heidelberg Catechism and Zacharias or Sinus and others as they were putting that document together. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. My guy, Olivianus, in his commentary on Romans, which mm-hmm. no one has ever <laughs> probably ever will read, but he says that the entire book of Romans, the key to the whole book of Romans, is the distinction between law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's always struck me because, you know, there are folks that say, well, only Lutherans talk about law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you do in your commentary. Mm-hmm. So, Fesco. <laughs> We'll turn on the white hot lights yeah, here, here the Klieg lights. Yeah. How long have you been a Lutheran? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> yes. When did I ask Martin into my heart? Yeah. You know, that's a common, I think, claim that people make. But as you and others have observed, you know, the law gospel distinction is not only common to Lutheran theology, but it's also common to reform theology. And not only is it common to reform theology, but I think that where they both get it is from the Bible and from yeah. the Apostle <laughs> yeah. Paul. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, it's it's you know, in the Bible. Exactly. Uh, you know, so that's important. And in fact, you know, just a little historical note here is that it was Melanchthon who I think formalized the category of the third use of the law, and Calvin picked it up from Melanchthon. Yeah. So you could claim that Calvin was Lutheran. Uh, well, on in some fact, of these he, things. he actually said that of himself. Yeah. He actually said, I am a Lutheran. Yeah. Not in the denominational sense, right. but that he felt that kind of kinship yeah. uh, with Luther. But as you say, I think you were suggesting earlier, the categories, those sections of mm-hmm. Romans are not hermetically sealed right. because in chapter six and in mm-hmm. chapter eight, mm-hmm. and depending on how one reads chapter seven, mm-hmm. the doctrine of sanctification does sort of sneak in mm-hmm. or is interjected into mm-hmm. the middle mm-hmm. of the book as well. So it's not hermetically sealed to the end of the book. Correct. I think that that's true. I mean, what Paul is doing is he will talk about certain topics like the doctrine of justification, but then he'll talk about how it connects to sanctification and other things. So you're absolutely right. It's not hermetically sealed. There are implications. Sure, absolutely. So the Christian life is always closely connected Mm -hmm. and organically bound up with and growing out of the doctrine of salvation. Mm -hmm. As the older Reformed writers used to say, and I'm sure you would agree, that we are justified that we might be sanctified. Mm -hmm. And so we can't help almost as preachers, having talked about the good news, to talk about the consequences of it, Mm -hmm. which are overflowing out Mm -hmm. of the good news. Absolutely. Well, let's look at some particular places. Actually, before I do that, let's do this. And I want to get this on the table and talked about a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, having talked about the structure of Romans, sometimes people treat Romans as if it were like a mini systematic theology. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, there's a structure. On the other hand, Romans isn't really Mm -hmm. a mini systematic theology, is it? It's still a letter. Right. So 
let's treat it like that, the way we would First Corinthians or Galatians or Thessalonians. To whom did he write this? presumably Roman Christians, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when and why? Yeah, I think that that's a really important distinction to make because of that popular notion or misunderstanding that it is a systematic treatment of doctrine. This isn't to say that Paul is illogical or unsystematic in his thinking, but on the other hand, it's not to say that it's like Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology where he's going through each particular topic. And I think that maybe that misunderstanding has been fostered by the fact that theologians like Calvin followed Paul's outline and they present somewhat of a systematic treatment of topics. But as you've noted, and rightly so, that this is a letter and it's Paul, the missionary pastor, writing to the church at Rome sometime in the late 50s, probably 55 to 58 AD, and he's writing to them to address important topics that pertain to the Christian life, important doctrinal topics that feed the Christian life. And in particular, I think he's kind of hammering out the thesis as to what are the implications and what does it mean that the just shall live by faith? What does it mean that God has revealed his righteousness and revealed the gospel and that he has revealed his wrath against unrighteousness? What do all of these things mean and how does that play out in terms of the work of Christ? and then the work of the Spirit and the work of sanctification. So, yeah, it's not systematic in that sense, and it's occasional in the sense that Paul is addressing the specifics of the occasion at that particular time for that particular church. Does this mean that we are therefore hamstrung and that we can't find implications for the Christian life in general? Of course not. We can most assuredly do that. But we do have to recognize its particular provenance and its particular purpose so that we can rightly use it. So about when did he write this? Sometime in the late 50s. We're not absolutely sure, but sometime between 55, sometime after 55 AD, first century. And to the Roman congregation, the Roman Christians, what do we know about them and their circumstances? They were consisting of probably Jews and Gentiles, a mixed congregation. As to the majorities, that's difficult to say, but it might be that there was a Gentile majority in the church and a Jewish minority. And we get that because of Romans chapter 14, where Paul is talking about the strong and the weak, and particular some observing festivals and some of the old Jewish observances. And so Gentile converts. And uh, as to the specifics, we're not exactly sure too much more beyond that, but we know that maybe from some of other Paul's writings that maybe some Roman officials might have been in the congregation, some in Caesar's household, but we just have to take that general information and go with that. And nothing about a pope. Uh, No. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Which is worth noting, right, that um, if if there was always a papacy, Mm -hmm. then um, you might expect something like that, but nothing there. Right. So let's look at some passages. Okay. 116. Mm -hmm. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. I've heard ministers, I'm thinking of one in particular from many, many years ago that most folks wouldn't know, but he preached frequently about not being ashamed of the gospel. This was a great theme of his. Mm -hmm. He was not as consistent in explaining what the gospel was, but we always knew whatever it was, he was not ashamed of it. And that's important. I would like to have seen him tell us what it is more frequently. But what does Paul mean by gospel in 116? And you suggest in your commentary that this verse is in some ways programmatic Mm -hmm. for the whole book Mm -hmm. of Romans. 
I think Paul gets the idea itself or the term itself, the gospel or the good news from Isaiah 52, where Isaiah announces that beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And what this was all about is that Isaiah was looking forward to a time when God himself would enter into history to redeem his people. And so when Paul announces that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he is recognizing that God has broken into history, that he has come to redeem his people through the person and work of Christ, as he announces, you know, quite famously there at the opening verses of Romans, where he says in Romans 1, 3, and following concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul works out the implications as to what is it that God has done through Christ? How has he brought about redemption? And this is the gospel of which Paul is unashamed. And I think the reason that he says he's not ashamed is because for first century Jews, this would have been, I think, somewhat scandalous for them. Here is Jesus, this crucified criminal. Why would Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, attach himself to this brigand, to this one accused? And he's saying, no, I'm not ashamed of it, because in the cross is where we find redemption, and it's what God has done in Christ that he announces so enthusiastically. And we know from the resurrection that, in fact, Jesus was not only innocent, Mm -hmm. but righteous. Correct, yeah. So that we have reason, in a sense, to boast in the cross. Mm -hmm. So that the cross is at the core of Paul's message generally, but especially to the Romans. Absolutely. He's a theologian of the cross. Yes. And that's significant because Rome is, when he writes in the 50s, at the center of the civilized world. Mm -hmm. They had an empire, and that's the capital. So something like Washington, D.C. And what are people talking about in Rome? Power. Mm -hmm. And they're not talking about heavenly power or Mm -hmm. spiritual power. And what is a cross in Rome? Well, a cross is disgusting. Mm-hmm. It's repulsive. Right. Only the worst of the worst, uh, social offscouring, are crucified. Mm-hmm. So to say that you're following somebody who was crucified, and you say that to a Roman, mm-hmm. and imagine if they were Roman civil officials. Right. And you say, well, listen, I want to talk to you about this rabbi who wasn't even technically maybe even officially a rabbi, mm-hmm. right? So he's not even associated with any particular rabbinical school. He's not connected to any powerful families, mm-hmm. at least not that the Romans would recognize. Right. And uh, it's complicated to explain how he's descended from David. But <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Well, and he was a teacher and he had a following and he healed people and he raised people from the dead. But then Pilate, whom probably most people didn't regard very well in Rome, there's a reason why he's in Judea, mm-hmm. well, he crucified him. Mm-hmm. And that would be the end of the conversation. Well, you know, this is all very bizarre and mildly entertaining. Mm-hmm. But the minute you say crucifixion, well, okay, well, we're done with that. You're absolutely right. I think it's difficult for us to enter into that culture to be able to assess the cross in that particular manner to understand why Paul would say he's not ashamed of the cross or not ashamed of the gospel. Because for us, for 2,000 years, the cross has been a precious thing to Christians. And so yet in Paul's first century setting, it would have been the absolute inverse of that, the absolute opposite of that. And so that's why he announces that and he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And so for us, I think that we can work from the implications of what it means not to be ashamed so long as we understand why Paul is saying it in that particular setting. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. 
Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kemp, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to John Fesco about his new commentary on Romans, the Lectio Continua, expository commentary on the New Testament, available in the bookstore and elsewhere. So there's good news in Romans 1.16, but there's also bad news in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And as we were joking earlier, there is in Paul a distinction between law and gospel. So we mentioned it, but we didn't say what it is. So what is the law as distinct from the gospel? It's important that we recognize that when we approach God, that ultimately there is this barrier, and we could put it in Old Testament terms. Paul quotes this in Romans 10.5, that the one who does them shall live by them. And that's in reference to the law. In other words, you do the law. And that's what the Apostle Paul really sets forth here in these opening chapters in chapters 1 through the first part of 3, and that he's showing how human beings are universally guilty of violating the law, whether it is through the law or the works of the law written upon the heart that all people know through the dictates of conscience, where Paul says in Romans 2, the conscience either accusing or excusing their conduct, or in particular for the Jews who had God's law revealed to them at Sinai. Here Paul says, in effect, he says, you know, you who teach the law, why do you violate the law? Why do you encourage people to violate the law? So that he brings them under this universal condemnation of the law. And he gets to that climax there at the beginning of Romans chapter 3, where he says, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. All have turned away. You know, the poison of asps is under their lips and their tongues. That kind of language will not... Yeah. Get you a call today, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. he really lays yeah. into them and all of us yeah. so that there's no mistaking the natural human condition yeah. after the fall. Yeah, and I think in particular to put yourself in the shoes of a first century observant Jew who would believe that in vis-a-vis the law that, hey, I'm doing the law. I'm not wicked. I, I don't have the poison of asps under my lips. You know, that would be highly offensive, I think, to most of Paul's Jewish listeners. And so I think if we find it offensive, we should probably, you know, notch it up a couple of degrees. The first century Jew would even be far more offended. And that's when Paul, I think, wants to dig the hole so deep that you have to wonder, well, how on earth could we possibly extricate ourselves from this pit? And that's where he introduces then the gospel in Romans 3.20 and following. And it's that famous, you know, conjunction, 
but, and then God, but God, as he says there so famously, that he says that this is what you are incapable of doing vis-a-vis the law, but now this is what God has done outside of the law by sending Christ. And so this is why I say this, and I'm simply echoing what the reformers have said, and that you do the law which means you either obey it and you obey it perfectly, or you believe the gospel and you don't bring your works in order to secure your salvation. And again, this isn't Lutheran theology. This is just Paul when he says you're saved by grace through faith and this not of works, lest anyone should boast. Of course, he says that in Ephesians 2, 8 and following. But that I think you could say in a nutshell is the law gospel distinction is Ephesians 2, 8 and following, which he really expands upon there in these chapters in Romans. And so, yeah, law and gospel is so important to recognize that distinction. Yeah, it's not like Paul doesn't say something in Romans about without the works mm-hmm. of the law. Mm-hmm. So Exactly. And that gets us to Romans 4, where mm-hmm. in your commentary, you distinguish between Paul's doctrine of justification mm-hmm. and Rome's. And mm-hmm. by Rome, I don't mean Rome of uh, 55 to 59 AD. Right. I mean the Roman Catholic communion mm-hmm. has an official doctrine of justification, mm-hmm. which in a nutshell says what, John? In a nutshell, says you receive your initial justification through your baptism, and once you receive that infused grace by faith working through love, you improve upon your justification. And the language of Trent says that you become more righteous so that when you finally arrive at the final judgment, if you have a sufficient amount of righteousness, then you are finally declared righteous or just in God's sight. If you do not and you're insufficiently righteous, then it's off to purgatory. Which is just about where everyone goes. Apart from a supernatural special work, Mm -hmm. everyone goes to purgatory. Right. In Rome. And not just for a week or two, but for hundreds of thousands of years sure. because you didn't do your penances mm-hmm. in this life mm-hmm. and you've got sins for which you have to pay. Right. Right. Absolutely. Whereas Paul, as you noted in Romans 4, says something very different. And in particular, I think what has always struck me, and this is something that I have really you know, meditated upon for a number of years, as I suspect you have as well. But Paul writes in Romans 4, 5, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Yeah. I think those are some of the most profound words in that chapter. Perhaps, I don't know if in all of the Bible, but certainly it would be on the top 10 list perhaps for me, which is he calls Abraham ungodly, but at the same time, he says that God justifies him, which means I think right then and there, it rules out the Roman Catholic doctrine because Rome's teaching at its most fundamental level is about the justification of the godly, not the ungodly. No, that's exactly right. They've turned faith working through love Mm -hmm. into faith formed by love. Exactly. And yet, when you look at Romans 4, and I would encourage, you know, our listeners to do this, read through Romans 4 and count up how many times Paul uses the word either believe or some variant thereof or faith. And to my count, it's 17 times so that Paul is beating this steady drumbeat here of faith, 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 faith. It's not by your works, but rather by trusting in the promise that God has given through the gospel in resting in the work of another, not in your own. Romans 5.1 is pretty clear, I think. Therefore, Having been justified by faith. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Not, yeah. not by faithfulness, right. but by faith, mm-hmm. trusting, resting, leaning, receiving Christ, right. we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. through whom we also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace 
in which we stand. Absolutely. I mean, those are the words of the gospel. That's the balm that heals us. Those are the life-giving words that, you know, raise the dead to life. And that's what we need to hear. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And then he says in chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those (laughs) who are in Christ Jesus. So just in case you weren't sure, (laughs) right, what this is and what the consequences are and the place out of which and the truth out of which and the reality out of which the Christian life is lived, well, here it is. Mm -hmm. And yet there are consequences, as we were saying earlier, for the Christian life, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. he talks about in uh, chapter 6 and in chapter 8. Reflect with us for a moment on chapter 8, though, where he lays out the Christian life, because you talk about this at some length Mm -hmm. in the commentary. Yeah, I think that for many Christians, you know, we hear that victorious proclamation of the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we revel in that and we rejoice in that. We take great rest and peace because of that declaration. But at the same time, we then begin to look around and we scratch our heads because we say, well, if this is the victorious Christian life, why am I still suffering? Why is my life not kind of lining up with this glorious declaration? And in— Wait, wait so Paul— hold Hold on, let's clarify okay. this. Yeah, yeah. So Paul is not <laughs> teaching your best life now. Is that what you're telling us, Fesco? That's right. Yeah. No, that's that's an important thing. And it's very understandable as to why we would think that. I think we hear the resurrection of Christ and we want that now. And that's, I think, perfectly natural to want it now. It's perfectly natural to scratch our heads and to wonder why the suffering now. And yet Paul, what he says is, and you know, this is my summarization of it, is that As the head suffered and was glorified, so now the body must suffer and then will be glorified. So we are in that suffering stage right now. And so in the midst of the Christian life, I think Paul, almost rhapsodically, I think at certain points towards the end of Romans 8, he really tries to convey that in spite of the suffering— God has not forgotten us, that he will complete the good work that he has begun, and that nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And there's that beautiful passage there in Romans 8.35 and following where he says, nothing can separate us from the love, famine or persecution, sword or peril, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of this creation will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ. And that, I think he's trying to convey that to us. And in the midst of that, he says there so richly, one of the ways that he does that is through prayer, that the very Spirit of God lifts us into heaven, as it were, so that our very prayers go before the throne of God. And, you know, that's why I love it when he says, you know, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so the suffering of which Paul talks of is no light matter. I mean, he describes it in the most weightiest of terms, you know, that we're being persecuted and suffering unto death and given up to the sword. But beneath all of that is the undergirding grace of God that enables us not simply, as he says, not merely to persevere, but rather somewhat ironically or mysteriously to conquer and to overcome through our suffering. And so I think in the simplest of terms, we can say when we are weak, that's when he is strong. And I think that's Paul's chief point about the difficulties and the challenges that we face in the Christian life. And it's not rhetoric no. or mere rhetoric, right? Because in about 65 AD, mm-hmm. Nero had a urban renewal program of some kind, mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. some sort of corruption, and it didn't go well and it got burned down. Mm-hmm. And then he blamed the Christians. Right. 
Yeah. And as a consequence of that, these Christians were arrested, mm-hmm. they were covered with tar, mm-hmm. and they were set on fire. Mm-hmm. That really happened. I don't know that we hear it much anymore. I grew up hearing people saying, you know, especially in an athletic context, a football game, it was like the Christians to the Lions. I don't hear that expression much anymore. Mm-hmm. But that really happened. Right. No, you're absolutely So when right. Paul writes to these people about suffering, yeah, it's about maybe their health or other kinds of suffering. But I mean, some of these people were really going to suffer for the faith mm-hmm. and because they were Christians. Yeah. Right? So this isn't, as I say, mere rhetoric. You're absolutely right. I mean, not only did the Christians in Rome suffer, but as you know, and I suspect our listeners know as well, Paul himself had his PhD in suffering. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Yeah, lashed, you know, three times within one lash of his life. And so, I mean, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked. So here's a man who definitely understood suffering. And so the fact that he could write these things should hopefully encourage us to know that God is not unaware of these things. That should really give us serious concerns about the health and wealth mm-hmm. message, right? Yeah. Because, you know, all of the apostles suffered to some degree mm-hmm. or other, but few of them to the degree that the apostle Paul did. Right. And uh, you'd think if the health and wealth thing was correct, mm-hmm. right, the more faith you have, the better your life will go, and uh, you won't have problems, right. and get your jet, and all this stuff that these guys are saying— <laughs> Right. Yeah. If that were true, you'd see it in the New Testament, but you just don't. Yeah. What you see is a theology of suffering right. oftentimes. Okay. Well, there are so many things uh, John can testify. I sent him 20 questions, and I, <laughs> I said we probably won't get through all of this, and clearly we're not going to. We can't go all the way through the book of Romans, but we tried to give you a flavor. Let me close with this question. As you were preaching through Romans and then sitting down to you know put your notes in some kind of form and, and to make a commentary, what changed in your mind? How did your mind change? What did you learn by doing this commentary? I think that for me, I think initially when I first approached Romans, I came at it with many questions about systematic theology, and I think that that's natural and uh, that's expected, and Paul does, to be fair, answer many of those questions that we would ask. But at the same time, I think as I read it too, I became aware of what you might call biblical theology or redemptive history, so that, you know, as Paul situates his doctrine, it's so important to see how he situates it on the plane of redemptive history, the comparison of the two Adam or the fact that when he's talking about the flesh-spirit antithesis, how the flesh wages against the spirit, that he's not primarily talking about some sort of internal, you know, experiential battle that we face— however true that such things might be, but rather he's talking about the antithesis between the age of the flesh, that which was dominated by the flesh, versus the age of the Spirit, that which has been dominated by the outpouring of the Spirit. And it's inaugurated, as Paul says there in Romans 1, 3, and 4, through the resurrection of Christ. So I think that that, to me, has been one of the things that really was impressed upon me as I preached through this and as I studied through this. A second observation is that, you know, we talk so much about doctrine— And it's, don't get me wrong, it's super important. I mean, obviously, as two theology professors, we do this for a living. But what was impressed upon me and reinforced upon me is how important the piety that comes along with that doctrine is. So that if you can wax on about justification and sanctification, but then you can't lay your life down in love for the weaker brother, as Paul talks about in Romans 14, then there's a disconnect between doctrine and piety that shouldn't be there. And so, you know, as Reformed folks, I think we love Romans 1 through 9, 
And that's awesome. <laughs> but we should stop and remember that, hey, there's 10 through 16, and there's rich, rich teaching there as well that is not purely practical because there's a lot of doctrine there, but it is also richly practical, as we would say the first half is also richly practical as well, but the emphasis there is on practice and that we should reflect as much upon those latter chapters as we do the front end of Romans. To me, I think that's one of the things that was really reinforced to me as I studied this book again. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.